Stop. Before we begin, I just want to say one thing. We haven't been too on topic on the archaeology and Norse literature as of late, so this episode will be focusing a little bit more on that. This wasn't supposed to be its own episode, but I feel like it's been a while since we got back to the roots of the Brute Norse educational concept. The script for this episode began as an intro to an episode about a man called Tormod Torfeus, so much that the segue just got longer and longer and longer. In the end, I just decided that this deserves to be its own thing. I also thought it would be fun to go all in and have a completely psychotic hang-up on one tiny little area, and just yak about whatever interesting nuance I could bother to mention. This particular place is an area that I know intimately. It is sort of where I'm from, and where I've spent a ridiculous amount of time kicking shit growing up. It's also the site of one of my very first jobs, so in one sense, you're getting tour guide Eirik today, giving you my tourist spiel. So this is obviously your host speaking, Old Norse philologist Erik Stolzen, and this is the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future. This is my story of Avalsnes. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, I used to work every summer at the Viking Age Open Air Museum and History Center at Avalsnes on Karmey in West Norway. Now, it was just a summer job, but it was definitely one of the sweetest gigs that I've ever had. I mean, what 18, 19, 20-something-year-old wouldn't love to bask around in a reconstructed Viking-era longhouse all summer? while spending my leisure time roaming the hills for burial mounds and other traces of the more or less distant past. My parents barely saw me those summer months. So yeah, Avalsnes. Let's put this place into context. First of all, Avalsnes is instrumental in the making of Brute Norse. We're talking deep lore here. Now, if by any chance you were passing through the area, Superficially, the village of Avalsnes might not look like much as you drive straight through it. It has a couple of supermarkets, a hairdresser, a yarn shop that inexplicably sells Warhammer figurines. Not in my day, though. But it did have two gas stations. And hopefully they still have that greasy hole in the wall called Viking Grill. In another time, you used to be able to go down to the shore and buy shrimp and crab but that's all ancient history. And speaking of ancient history, if you were to pull off the main road in pretty much any direction, you'd probably be only a stone's throw away from some kind of significant historic site. The most obvious landmark being the 13th century St. Olav's Church, a ways outside the village center, past the school and the old people's home, through the hills of the sheep pastures, which today only hold vague traces of the once more prominent Iron Age burials on the site. If you were to follow this winding road all the way up to the church, you'd find the sunken hall of Nordvegen History Center, which presents the area's history and archaeology. And if you follow the signs to the gravel path leading out to the little islands further towards the inner sound separating the Isle of Carme from the mainland, you'll pass through a landscape that once held a Hanseatic trading post and a quaint little tavern. Today, only the root cellar remains, which allegedly served as a rudimentary drunk tank. 
ultimately, you might cross over a footbridge, and on your right you might see, in the middle of the bay, a scary poking out of the water. Locals will insist that this is the very same scary mentioned in the saga of Olaf Tryggvason, in which that very same Olaf had a bunch of sade men, pagan warlocks, tied to the rocks at ebb, to be drowned by the rising tide, as famously depicted in a woodcut by Halfdan Egerius. Now, if you cross that bridge, be careful to close the gate behind you, and follow the thick woods of invasive Canadian Sitka spruce, and then you will ultimately come to a clearing. Uphill from there, behind a traditional diagonal wood fence, you might see the top of a longhouse poking out. That's where I spent most of my summers for several years, and much of my free time generally before that. The Viking farm at Avalsnes contains several reconstructed Viking Age houses, some more speculative than others, if I'm being nitpicky, but I'd say that the standard overall is pretty damn high. The longhouse itself is exactly the sort of building that inspires calm and silent contemplation even in the presence of others. Two people can sit in there for an hour without saying a word, and it doesn't feel the least bit strange. Sometimes the silence was broken by the ungodly cry of some seabird on the roof, but for the most part it was quite pleasant. This is where me and my dear friend and colleague Axel would feast into the wee hours, often on Polish beer fenced from crafty acquaintances in the construction industry. The site could also be rented for functions and weddings and whatnot, and some of my finest memories come from such assignments. I fondly remember being heckled by a prominent Norwegian sexologist who disagreed with me about the ethics and entertainment value of me telling the story of how the great Viking poet Egil Skallagrimson was once refused beer by a stingy host and therefore poked the man's eye out and vomited in his face. I am very proud to say that my own heavy pouring hands have personally assured that some of the kingdom's most esteemed celebrities probably had to be carried off the island. On the many occasions where Axel and I simply stayed there for weeks on end, it was not uncommon for us to take his little boat into the village, and then, still in our historic kit, go to the supermarket where nobody raised an eyebrow at the two Vikings perusing the aisles for sausage and beer. And there was nothing quite like going to sleep on the very same benches we otherwise sat on, snoring by the dying embers of the hearth. Good night, Einarikiaj, he'd say in Proto-Norse. Good night, Ansukatlaj, I'd reply. Listen to these fucking nerds. And drift off to dream about the genealogies of ancient and great heroes, of the free shameful deeds of Starkad the Old, of the wine-heavy ale bowls of Attila's court, and the words that Odin whispered into Baldur's ear that day he lay on the pyre. Someone once asked me if I'd ever seen a ghost while working there, and I told them that this house was only built in the mid-90s, so who the hell would be haunting it? I think... The proposition of a haunting in such a recent building would have made it even scarier, maybe. Though still, whenever I crawled out in the dead of night to take a leak under the stars, which is truly one of the most underappreciated sensations there is, I was likely, perhaps, to give a friendly heads-up to any hidden folk below my feet to hedge my bets in the spirit of neighborliness. Avalsnes is one of those rare places in the history, and indeed the prehistory of the Kingdom of Norway, that managed to maintain relevance and continuity of power from the Bronze Age all the way up until the Middle Ages. In the Bronze Age, more than 3,000 years ago, 
powerful tribal dynasties built dozens of monumental tombs that loomed ominously over the deforested heathlands. And the contents of these burial mounds, as well as costly votive sacrifices in the surrounding wetlands, attest to the existence of a vast super-regional trade network with Scandinavia as its northern extreme. The Isle of Carme is relatively long and shields the mainland from the North Sea, providing a narrow strait with many coves and smaller islands where ships can be moored and boats pulled ashore. In terms of financial and military politics, this made Avalsnes, with its many natural harbors, a strategic hotspot, as it sits in a spot where the strait tightens, which of course means that the currents are strong, and the direction of the current changes naturally with the tides. Meaning, of course, that any force with the means and motivation to police the traffic through the sound would have a fairly easy job on their hands. Whoever controlled the traffic controlled the region and would also have a pretty decent influence on any movement up and down the coast. We have to remember that sailing was not really a thing back then. Basically, before the Viking Age, each and every single motherfucker hoping to ship anything across any body of water would have to do so by rowing. And this is true whether we're talking about leather coracles, or dugout canoes, or the lean war canoes of the Bronze Age, whose boards were sewn together with roots or sinew, to the sewn and clinker-built rowing boats and oar-powered ships of the Iron Age. That was just how it was. There was no easy way to cross the ocean. But when sailing was established, well, as history has shown, they started doing it pretty fucking well. But I mean, that took literally thousands of years of maritime experience that reached its eureka moment sometime in meh, the 8th century, maybe. Between then and the Stone Age, every asshole in Northern Europe, whether we're talking about Anglo-Saxon invasions, Germanic federati on the way to the Roman frontier, Bronze Age copper traders, or Vendel Age Baltic pirates, each and every one of them relied on oars, paddles, and good old-fashioned elbow grease every single damn nautical mile they went. And were probably not too keen on crossing the open ocean unless they absolutely, positively had to. And therein lies the power of a place like Avalsnes. In the Roman Iron Age, Avalsnes appears to have been the center of a regional kingdom in that particular Germanic style that started popping up after the Marcomannic Wars in the late 2nd century AD. People affiliated with this ruling dynasty at Avalsnes, whether by blood or other circumstance, were buried with expensive Roman feasting gear, were cremated, wrapped in beer skins, and had standing stones erected in their honor along headlands flanking the narrow strait. The phantom presence of ancient power elites is discernible in the material culture of the local burials in the immediate vicinity, but the influence of these powerful families might have reached quite further than that. Some archaeologists have argued that the thousand-man force that provided the first strata of the Illerup weapon sacrifices in Denmark might have come from a Norwegian military network. Lotte Hedeger has argued that they were veterans slaughtered on their way home from auxiliary service in the Roman army, while Jörgen Ilchar argues for an invasion force swooping in from the Norwegian west coast. But who in Norway had the power to mobilize a thousand-man army in the early 3rd century AD? A stratified army with naval capacity, with officers and cavalry, armed with Roman swords and lances. You know, that's quite an achievement in the 3rd century. While we can never really know how or who organized this army, Ilchar points at, well, as far as we can tell, the most reasonable contender at the time, and that 
is the dynasty that ruled the Avalsnes polity. Possibly they went by the term Rugians. I don't know, Rugish in Proto-Norse, a tribal name that is first attested in Tacitus's Germania. We are, after all, in the historical county of Rogaland, the land of the Rugians. We definitely know that there were Germanic peoples traveling under that name, establishing temporary kingdoms in different parts of Europe, for instance on Rugen in Pomerania, and by the 5th century some Rugians had even migrated down to modern-day Hungary where they established a kingdom called fucking Rugiland, if you can't believe it. The Byzantine chronicler Jordanus calls Scandinavia the womb of nations for a reason, mainly because we kept popping out tribes that didn't want to stay here. Sorry, I keep sliding off track. Anyway, let's assume that these soldiers and warriors that met their Waterloo at Illerup were in cahoots with some charismatic asshole up at Avalsnes. If so, it's possible that Avalsnes was a pawn in a Roman game of proxy wars. Now this might sound like a rash conclusion, but hear me out. Because we know that this is exactly what the Romans did in other cases. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. They're trying to run it like a perfectly civilized empire, and you got these fucking Germanic assholes right across the border, and these whippersnappers keep throwing pot shots at you, keep throwing punches here and there, you'd be thinking, gee, I wish something could be done to these people. Now wouldn't it be terribly convenient if we just took these assholes as cousins and got them to, you know, rough them up a bit, sweeten the deal with some shiny crap, give them a sword and a bucket and maybe some glass cups or something, that'll blow their minds. Hell, maybe we can train them. Worked well for the CIA with that Bin Laden guy, so why not give it a shot? Having distant barbarians attacking those who are closer, either by seducing their kings or flat out hiring them as mercenaries, is actually kind of a genius move. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or if not my friend, then at least someone we can make good use of. We should assume that Avalsnes was just as horny as any other barbarian periphery at the time to pimp out young men of fighting age for the Roman army and in the process providing fertile ground for the development of future military aristocracies and changing Germanic cultures forever. Uh, the butterfly effect of Germanic peoples bouncing ball with the Romans, as you know, will basically snowball into everything this podcast is about, so yeah. A very fascinating period indeed. This isn't just a speculative thought experiment, by the way. There's actual archaeology that could be used to back this hypothesis up. Just a couple of yards east of St. Olaf's church, we find the, today, puny and barely discernible remains of what once was an absolutely massive burial mound, a tumulus measuring 43 meters across and 5 meters tall. The 3rd century prince buried in this mound, called Flaghö, was the owner of a massive gold torque of the Kolben type, cast from almost 600 grams of solid gold. He was also buried with three gold rings, one gold-plated ring, a gold dress pin, a drinking horn with silver fittings, deteriorated mystery objects decorated with gold foils, a beautiful shield with a silver boss, a Roman spatha, a sword, with gilded silver pressplek adorning the scabbard. He had two spearheads, 32 glass gaming pieces, a bronze feasting bucket of the so-called hemor type, and of course the accompanying bronze wine strainer, a bronze hanging dish, and a silvered bronze mirror, completely unheard of in Scandinavia at the time. The closest parallel you have to go to Hungary to find. The closest parallel to the burial itself at Flaghö is the princely burial at Gommeln in Sachsen-Anhalt, Germany. 
The tight similarities between these two burials is probably no coincidence, and we might theorize that these two princes each lived in their respective ends of an interconnected network of military alliances, stretching from southwest Norway down to central Europe. One that was clearly based on interpersonal connections such as marriage, some degree of common cultural and material identity, which of course would have been easy because they would have been able to understand each other fluently. Proto-Norse was not that different from common Germanic, after all. But comparing the two graves, we also see that the Prince of Gomern and Avalsnes shared common ideals. Their burials demonstrate that there was an established and mutually understood concept of how a Germanic king beyond the Roman frontier was supposed to look, behave, and also be buried. In the migration period, someone also built a fortification on the site, making Avalsnes a rare example of a permanently inhabited fortification, as opposed to the rather more common hill forts, where people had to abandon their farms and villages and waited out on higher ground. Which stresses again the military power concentration at Avalsnes, which simply refused to budge. The north-south connection continues into the so-called Vendel period, from the 6th century onwards, which in Norway is called the Merovingian period, and not without reason, given the strong element of Frankish and continental Germanic influence on Norway at the time, which seems to differ a little bit from the material context of, say, Vendel-era Sweden, and even the early Anglo-Saxons, which in many cases seem to have been more closely tied to each other than either was to Norway. Which of course wasn't Norway at the time, but I think you could still make the case that this was a distinct political territory. Now, Avalsnes lies next to the oldest proper ship burials in Norway, both dating to the 8th century. The oldest of the two, the Stulhø burial, has been proposed as demonstrating some kind of Frankish connection. Tests have shown that both of these ships were built out of timber from the same growth zone as the Oseberg ship. We don't know where this timber was grown, but it certainly opens up the possibility that the Oseberg ship was built somewhere not very far away. A possible third ship burial has been indicated on Avalsnes itself, but has not been excavated. There has always been a local desire to associate the burials in and around Avalsnes with named individuals from the sagas. There is certainly no shortage of candidates from the pages of Norse literature, but demonstrating a link between historical figures and specific burials has proven to be pretty much impossible. People have, for example, tried to attach King Harald Fairhair to the ship burial at Grunhø, but that's about 150 years too early, and also contradicts other historical claims about the site of his mound. When Harald Fairhair first unified Norway in the 9th century, Avalsnes appears to have been his main estate, and continued to be used as a royal manor until the Hanseatic League burnt it down in the 14th century. The local tourist board will absolutely not let you forget about this fact. Even the local airport has a massive sign decreeing that you have landed in the homeland of the Viking kings, Norway's birthplace. And indeed, serious academics have tried to argue that Norway's name in fact originally referred to this specific area. Which is possible, I guess, but behind all the marketing and branding, there really isn't any undeniable evidence to back up the claim. I feel like I talked about this in the Norway's Eternal Return episode. If anything, the arguments are kind of indirect and circumstantial. But it's an interesting example of contemporary nation-building, if you will. A couple of generations after Harald, there was another king, Olav Tryggvason, who sought to Christianize all of Norway, peacefully. Just kidding, he did it by the sword. But interestingly, in Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla, which chronicled the kings of Norway, Olaf was once visited by none other than the pagan deity Odin at the royal estate on Avalsnes. Odin, who was obviously in disguise, told him the story of the ancient king Ogwald and his sacred cow, 
who gave Avalsnes its name. Ogwald himself was the great-grandfather of the semi-legendary sea king, Half, who was buried on Avalsnes, according to his saga. Then you have King Hjor, who was either his son or his grandson, the sources are a little bit contradictory here, who seems to have been the very last petty king in this polity, before he was removed by King Harald's conquest. Hjor was kind of an interesting fellow. He was married to a woman called Ljuvena, a princess of Bjarmaland, which is the Norse name for the land beyond Siberia's northwestern shore. An alliance of marriage presumably made to guarantee access to walrus ivory and skins from the White Sea, and on account of her Asiatic, dark, Siberian phenotype, gave birth to the twins Germunder and Homunder, both called Heliarskin, meaning Hellskin. Germunder Heliarskin, the so-called Black Viking, established himself as a renowned Icelandic settler who is presumed to have used shrewd Viking mafia tactics to amass absurd amounts of wealth, based mostly on speculation and the walrus trade, which essentially decimated the walrus population wherever the Vikings went. In his crew he had a Viking called Onundr Trefutr, literally Woodfoot, which as far as I know is the earliest mention of a peg-legged pirate in all the world's literature. Obviously, none of them would have been buried on Karme since they were exiles, but those ship burials might very well be some of Gerbund's ancestors. Avalsnes lies on the pilgrimage route north towards Nidaros and Stiklestad, where the other King Olaf, Olaf II, Haraldson, Norway's eternal king and national saint, fell to the martyr's axe. Many local legends are attached to St. Olaf. Northwest of Avalsnes, there is a spring which is said to have emerged when his retainers complained about thirst. The king plunged his fist into the bare rock, and water began to gush into the fist-sized crater, replenishing the hole whenever it is emptied, as Olaf decreed. I have myself witnessed this many times. It's strange, it's like a mug made out of solid mountain. Not too many visit these days, so it's good practice to actually empty it out when you go there to keep it fresh. Word has it that the spring's holy and often mosquito-infested waters is good against all manner of eye disease and even to aid fertility. We must also ask ourselves if there might have been an older pagan legend associated with this spring. No such legend survives, but it's unlikely that such an obvious and erratic natural phenomenon would have gone ignored in pre-Christian times. Interestingly, the spring sits right next to a farm called Hovland from Old Norse Hov, literally temple land. Historically, this estate also came with priesthood in the parish. So there's a bit of cultic continuity, you might say. In another Olaf legend, the king was sailing down the Karmsund Strait when five randy maidens ran down to shore and teased and beckoned the king to disembark and join them for a frolic in the hills. Why don't you wait till I come back, pagan sluts, the king said, as the maidens promptly turned to stone. The five bad maidens still stand there right below the bridge connecting Karme to the mainland, with clear line of sight to St. Olaf's church. Today we know, however, that these five maidens are in fact just standing stones that mark a cremation burial from the Roman Iron Age, and the skyline in the distance would not be characterized by the current church tower, rather some kind of chieftain's hall with a flaghö mound rising from the top of the hill, besides a set of three tall standing stones. Legend has it that St. Olaf's church was built not by human hands, but a troll's, and on Olaf's own commission. Not a bad bargain, it would seem, since trolls predictably make for decent builders if you can only make them pull their thumb out of their ass. 
The king might have been a tad too cocky in his dealings, though. He said that if the troll could finish the church within a certain time frame, then the king would gladly hand over the sun, the moon, and his mortal soul. If not, the troll got nothing. It was soon proven that the king had underestimated the troll's subterranean architectural skills, as the church began to take shape well ahead of deadline. Oof da, said the king. He needed to clear his mind, so he rode up to the Bronze Age Barrow Cemetery at Riehea, sometimes called Blue Hea, or Blood Heath, on account of a battle that is said to have raged there between King Hawkon the Good and his nephews, the sons of Eric Bloodaxe. And it was there that he heard the chant of a mother lulling her child to sleep from within one of the burial mounds, and he realized, of course, that this was the troll's wife and baby. And in her lullaby, she mentions our troll contractor by name. That is very bad opsec on her part. She might as well have given Olaf a gun and told her to kill her husband. You see, sometimes a Christian man calling a troll by its true name is a tried and tested method for putting the troll to sleep like a sick animal. And so the king swiftly rode back to give a whole new meaning to the practice of name dropping and arrived just in time to see the troll putting the finishing touches on the church steeple. Hey, watch out, Sigge! That was the troll's name. And the troll suddenly fell headfirst into the ground, north of the church, where he stands to this day. This might seem awfully familiar to attentive listeners who know their Norse mythology, as this is clearly a Christianized version of the master builder myth. Of course, Olaf plays the role of Thor in this story, and that happens a lot in Scandinavia after the Christianization, while in the sagas, the two of them are often juxtaposed or compared to each other. Of course, St. Olaf's church was not raised in St. Olaf's own lifetime, though it is likely that the other Olaf, Olaf Tryggvason, built a wooden church on the site, and before that we must assume some kind of pagan cult site. It is, for example, quite suspicious that the current 13th century church sits smack dab in the middle of a bunch of standing stones, one of which was broken in a fire, and another lies down in the hillside further down. Uh, the one stone still remaining hasn't always been thought of as a petrified troll, either. This particular stone, more commonly referred to as Virgin Mary's sewing needle, once carried a medieval runic inscription reading Michael Mario Nestor, Michael, next after Mary. Michael is the angel who wakes the dead at the end of days, and it's likely that this inscription is a reference to another legend. The Virgin Mary's sewing needle measures 7.2 meters tall and leans confidently towards the church wall, which in fact seems to lean back to avoid touching it. And for good reason, since it is said that the world will end the day that the stone touches the church wall. It has for a long time been claimed that priests would chisel off a little piece of the top and thus forestall the inevitable. Another prophecy tied to Avalsnes comes in the micro-saga known as Heming's Thotter, telling the story of the eponymous Heminger, a champion who attends the Battle of Stamford Bridge alongside Harald Hardrada in 1066. In this story, there is a sudden Monkey Island-style cutscene as the king decides to leave for England, in which we are suddenly transported to Avalsnes, where a local priest named Hugi has a dream where he goes into the churchyard where he sees two dead people playing tug-of-war with a corpse. The dead prophesies what history has shown, that the king will die if he leaves the country. The fact that this prophetic story was written down several centuries after it actually happened, you know, takes a little bit of the edge off it but it shows that Avalsnes had the reputation of a place where wondrous and strange things commonly happen. And I mean, this seems to be quite old. Besides stories of ancient kings and champions, there are also traces of this in Norse mythology. 
According to the Eddic poem Grimnismal, the sound separating Carme from the mainland was one of the waterways that Thor had to wade across every day to join the gods at court at the world tree Yggdrasil. At this point I'm kind of skimming through everything, but other things could also be said to demonstrate the peculiarity of this special geographical intersection of the historical and the legendary, the sacred and the profane. But to wrap things up, I have been slowly trying to circle in towards a specific personality, whom we will become more familiar with in future content. One of my summers at Avalsnes, I had the pleasant but slightly less exciting task of being a guide at St. Olaf's church itself. It wasn't exactly popping off in there, with all due respect. You know, every now and then a German tourist might enter, do the sign of the cross and then simply leave. And sometimes even pick up the pace if they saw me approaching them, clearly intimidated by my presence. But I did have some occasional interactions that were interesting. I remember in particular an old theologian whose eyes sparked as we talked about the cultic continuity on the site, from the mysterious astronomically oriented religion practiced by the Bronze Age mound builders to the animal sacrifices that may have reddened the soil on which the church now rests. I got the gist that while this wise old man was a biblical scholar today, in another age he might have been delighted to sing the praises of Freya or strike down a bull in veneration of Thor but on many, particularly rainy days, I received no visitors at all. And rainy days are not in short supply on Avalsnes. Then it was just me, sitting there, freezing, in a silent church. Sometimes I might sneak over to the church organ and play some crude French chansons, or I might speculate about the whereabouts of the secret passage that apparently went below the parking lot. And sometimes I had a peek at the dead guy beneath the floorboards. One time I forgot my lunch and managed to find a forgotten, half-empty tube of communion wafers which I ate in desperation. And then every now and then, if I bothered to do it, I rolled back the carpet and admired the worn burial slab of Tormod Torfeus, the half-forgotten Icelandic chronicler who had somehow ended up on this weather-beaten island and was ultimately buried right here in the church in 1719. I knew at the time that he was an important early modern chronicler, but I didn't even really realize quite the extent of his importance. That many of the factoids that I knew even then, and a lot of the material that I've been telling you about in this very podcast, could be traced directly back to his pioneering work. And yet, hardly anyone recalls Tormod Torfeus. In Denmark, Norway, or even his native Iceland, he's long since been eclipsed by others, and yet, in his own time, he overshadowed so many others himself. Tormod Torfeus accidentally founded the first modern research institute in Norway, one dedicated to ancient affairs, and ran this out of his house in southern Carme. He produced some of the most sober antiquarian research of his time, and defied common dogmas. That is one reason why some people did not like Tormod Torfeus in his own time. And that is part of the reason why he was let go, from his position as saga translator of the Danish king and sent from Copenhagen to live as a tax collector on Carme, pretty much against his will. Next time, we'll be looking closer at Tormod Torfeus and the world that he inhabited, from the windy shores of Iceland to the uplands of the royal court in Copenhagen and ultimately to the coast of Norway. But thank you for listening to this episode. Brute Norris runs on a pay-as or if-you-like basis. If you enjoyed it, I'll remind you that BN has a Patreon page and a Teespring store where I sell some rad-ass drip. 
patrons get a 20% discount, and some of them also get access to the Brood Norse Discord server. Which is kind of like an otherworldly realm, not unlike the old Norse hell, with snakes woven into the walls and really bad lighting. My name is Erik Stolsen, and you've been listening to the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future.